Mildred Lawson, Chapter Seventeen of Celibates by George Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. At the end of September, the green was duskier. Yellow had begun to appear, and the crisped leaf falling through the still air stirred the heart like memory. The skies which rose above the dying forest had acquired gentler tints, a wistfulness that came into the blue which was in keeping with the fall of the leaf. There was a scent of moisture in the underwoods. Rills had begun to babble. On the hazel rods leaves fluttered pathetically. The branches of the plane trees hung out like plumes, their drooping leaves making wonderful patterns. In the hotel gardens a sunflower watched the yellowing forest, then bent its head and died. The great cedar was deserted, and in October Morton was painting chrysanthemums on the walls of the dining-room. He called them the flowers of twilight, the flowers of the summer's twilight. Mildred watched him adding the last sprays to his bouquet of white and purple bloom. The inveigling sweetness of these last bright days entered into life, quickening it with desire to catch and detain some tinge of autumn's melancholy. All were away in the fields and the forest, and though little of their emotion transpired on their canvases, they were moved, as were Rousseau and Millet, by the grandeur of the blasted oak, and the lonely byre standing against the long forest fringes, dimming in the violet twilight. Elsie was delighted with a birch, and Sissy considered her rocks approvingly. "'You've caught the beauty of that birch,' said Sissy. "'How graceful it is in the languid air. It seems sad about something.' "'About the pine at the end of the glade,' said Elsie, laughing. "'I brought the pine a little nearer. I think it composes better.' "'Yes, I think it does. You must come and see my rocks and ferns. There's one corner I don't know what to do with, but I like my oak.' "'I will come presently. I'm working at the effect. The light will have changed in another half an hour. I've done all I can do to mine.' It would make a nice background for a hunting picture. There's a hunt today in the forest. Mildred and Morton are going to see the meat. Elsie continued painting. Sissy sat down on a stone and soon lost herself in meditations. She thought about the man she was in love with. He had gone back to Paris. She was now sure that she hated his method of painting and finding that his influence had not been a good one, she strove to look on the landscape with her own eyes. But she saw only various painters in it. The last was Morton Mitchell, and she thought if he had been her lover she might have learnt something from him. But he was entirely taken up with Mildred. She did not like Mildred any more. She had behaved very badly to that poor little Rose Turner, Poor little thing, she trembles like that birch. What are you saying, sissy, who trembles like that birch? I was thinking of Rose. She seems dreadfully upset. Morton never looks at her now. I think that Morton would have married her if Mildred hadn't appeared on the scene. I know he was thinking of settling down. Mildred is a mystery. Her pleasure seems to be to upset people's lives. You remember poor Ralph Hoskin. 
He died of a broken heart. I can't make Mildred out. She tells a lot of lies. She's always talking about her virtue, but I hardly think that Morton would be as devoted to her as he is if he weren't her lover. Do you think so? I don't know. Men are very strange. Elsie rose to her feet. She put aside her camp-stool, walked back a few yards, and looked at her picture. The motive of her picture was a bending birch at the end of the glade. Rough forest growth made clear its delicate drawing, and in the pale sky, washed by rains to a faded blue, clouds arose and evaporated. The road passed at the bottom of the hill, and several huntsmen had already ridden by. Now a private carriage with a pair of horses stood waiting. "'That's Madame Delacour's carriage. She is waiting for Mildred and Morton. "'The people at Fontainebleau?' "'Yes, the wife of the great socialist deputy. They're at Fontainebleau for the season. Monsieur Delacour has taken the hunting. They say he has a fine collection of pictures. He buys Morton's pictures. It was he who bought his sheepfold.' Elsie did not admire Morton's masterpiece as much as Sissy, but they were agreed that Mildred might prove a disintegrating influence in the development of his talent. He had done no work since he had made her acquaintance. She was a mere society woman. She had never cared for painting. She had taken up painting because she thought it would help her socially. She had taken up Morton for the same reason. He had introduced her to the Delacours. She had been a great success at the dinner they had given last week. No doubt she had exaggerated her success, but old Dedier, who had been there too, had said that everyone was talking of la belle et la spirituelle anglaise. The girl sat watching the carriage stationed at the bottom of the hill, the conversation paused, a sound of wheels was heard, and a fly was seen approaching. The fly was dismissed, and Mildred took her seat next to Madame Delacour. Morton sat opposite. He settled the rug over the lady's knees, and the carriage drove rapidly away. "'They'll be late for the meet,' said Sissy. And all the afternoon the girls listened to the hunting. In the afternoon three huntsmen crashed through the brushwood at the end of a glade, winding the long horns they wore about their shoulders. Once a strayed hound came very near them. Elsie threw the dog a piece of bread. It did not see the bread, and pricking up its ears it trotted away. The horns came nearer and nearer, and the girls were affrighted lest they should meet the hunted boar and be attacked. It must have turned at the bottom of the hill. The horns died through the twilight, a spectral moon was afloat in the sky, and some woodcutters told them that they were three kilometers from Barbizon. When about a mile from the village they were overtaken by the Delacour's carriage, Morton and Mildred bade Madame good-bye and walked home with them. Their talk was of hunting. The boar had been taken close to the central carrefour. They had watched the fight with the dogs seven of which had been disabled before Monsieur Delacour succeeded in finally dispatching him. The edible value of Boar's head was discussed until Mildred mentioned that Madame Delacour was going to give a ball. 
Elsie and Sissy were both jealous of Mildred, but they hoped she would get them invited. She said that she did not know Madame Delacour well enough to ask for invitations. Later on she would see what could be done. Morton thought that there would be no difficulty, and Elsie asked Mildred what dress she was going to wear. Mildred said she was going to Paris to order some clothes, and the conversation dropped. At the end of the week the Delacours drove over to Barbizon and lunched at Lugnon. The horses, the carriage, the livery, the dresses, the great name of the deputy, made a fine stir in the village. "'I wonder if she'll get us invited,' said Elsie. "'Not she,' said Sissy. But Mildred was always unexpected. She introduced Monsieur and Madame Delacour to Elsie and Sissy. She insisted on their showing their paintings. They were invited to the ball, and Mildred drove away, nodding and smiling. Her dress was coming from Paris. She was staying with the Delacours until after the ball, so, as Sissy said, her way was nice and smooth and easy, very different indeed from theirs. They had to struggle with the inability and ignorance of a provincial dressmaker working against time. At the last moment it became clear that their frocks could not be sent to Barbizon, that they would have to dress for the ball in Fontainebleau. But where? They would have to hire rooms at the hotel, and, having gone to the expense of hiring rooms, they had as well sleep at Fontainebleau. They could return with Mildred. She would have the Delacour's carriage. They could all four return together. That would be very jolly. The hotel omnibus was going to Melu to catch the half-past six train. If they went by train, they would economize sufficiently in carriage hire to pay their hotel expenses, or very nearly. Morton agreed to accompany them. He got their tickets and found them places, but they noticed that he seemed a little thoughtful, not to say gloomy. Not the least, as Elsie said, like a man who was going to meet his sweetheart at a ball. I think, whispered Sissy, that he's beginning to regret that he introduced her to the Delacours. He feels that it is as likely as not that she'll throw him over for some of the grand people she will meet there. Sissy had guessed rightly. A suspicion had entered into his heart that Mildred was beginning to perceive that her interest lay rather with the Delacour than with him and he had not engaged himself to Mildred for any dances, because he wished to see if she would reserve any dances for him. This ball, he felt, would prove a turning point in his love story. He suspected Monsieur Delacour of entertaining some very personal admiration for Mildred. He would see if his suspicion were well-founded. He would not rush to her at once and, having shaken hands with his host and hostess, he sought a corner where he could watch Mildred and the ball. The rooms were already thronged, but the men were still separated from the women. The fusion of the sexes, which was the mission of the dance to accomplish, had hardly begun. Some few officers were selecting partners up and down the room, but the politicians, their secretaries, the prefects, and the sub-prefects had not yet moved from the doorways. The platitudes of public life were written in their eyes. 
but these made expressions were broken at the sight of some young girl's fragility or the paraded charms of a woman of thirty and then each feared that his neighbor had discovered thoughts in him unappropriate to the red ribbon which he wore in his buttonhole a cross between clergymen and actors thought morton and he indulged in philosophical reflections the military had lost its prestige in the boudoir nothing short of a continental war could revive it the actor and the tenor never did more than to lift the fringe of society's garment the curate continues a very solid innings in the country but in town the political lover is the ascendant a possible undersecretary is just the man to cut me out with mildred they discuss the election between kisses at that moment he saw mildred struggling through the crowd with a young diplomatist le comte de la ferriere she wore white tulle laid upon white silk the bodice was silver fish scales and she shimmered like a moonbeam she laid her hand on her dancer's shoulder moving forward with a motion that permeated her whole body a silver shoe appeared and morton thought what a vanity only a vanity but what a delicious and beautiful vanity the waltz ended some dancers passed out of the ballroom and mildred was surrounded it looked as if her card would be filled before morton could get near her but she stood on tiptoe and looking over the surrounding shoulders cried that she would keep the fourteenth for him why did you not come before she asked smiling and went out of the room on the arm of the young comte at that moment monsieur delacour took morton's arm and asked him when would the picture he had ordered be finished morton hoped by the end of next week and the men walked through the room talking of pictures on the way back they met mildred she told morton that she would make it all right later on he must now go and talk to madame delacour she had promised monsieur delacour the next dance monsieur delacour was fifty but he was straight and thin and there was no sign of gray in his black hair which fitted close and tight as a skull-cap his face was red and brown but he did not seem very old and morton wondered if it were possible for mildred to love so old a man madame delacour sat in a high chair within the doorway out of reach of any draught that might happen on the staircase her blonde hair was drawn high up in the eighteenth-century coiffure and her high pale face looked like a cameo or an old coin she spoke in a high clear voice and expressed herself in french a little unfamiliar to her present company she must have married beneath her thought morton and he wondered on what terms she lived with her husband he spoke of mildred as the prettiest woman in the room and was disappointed that madame delacour did not contest the point when sissy and elsie came whirling by sissy unnecessarily large and bare and elsie intolerably pert and middle-class morton regretted that he would have to ask them to dance and when he had danced with them and the three young ladies madame delacour had introduced him to and had taken a comtesse into dinner he found that the fourteenth waltz was over
But Mildred bade him not to look so depressed. She had kept the cotillion for him. It was going to begin very soon. He had better look after chairs. So he tied his handkerchief round a couple. But he knew what the cotillion meant. She would be always dancing with others. And the cotillion proved as he had expected. Everything happened, but it was all the same to him. Dancers had gone from the dancing room and returned in masks and dominoes. A paper imitation of a sixteenth-century house had been brought in. Ladies had shown themselves at the lattice. They had been serenaded, and had chosen serenaders to dance with. And when, at the end of his inventions, the leader fell back on the hand-glass and the cushion, Mildred refused dance after dance. At last the leader called to Morton. He came up certain of triumph, but Mildred passed the handkerchief over the glass and drew the cushion from his knee. She danced both figures with Monsieur Delacour. She was covered with flowers and ribbons, and though a little woman, she looked very handsome in her triumph. Morton hated her triumph, knowing that it robbed him of her. But he hid his jealousy as he would his hand in a game of cards, and when the last guests were going, he bade her good night with a calm face. He saw her go upstairs with Monsieur Delacour. Madame Delacour had gone to her room. She had felt so tired that she could sit up no longer, and had begged her husband to excuse her, and as Mildred went upstairs, three or four steps in front of Monsieur Delacour, she stopped to arrange with Elsie and Sissy when she should come to fetch them. They were all going home together. At that moment Morton saw her so clearly that the thought struck him that he had never seen her before. She appeared in that instant as a toy, a trivial toy made of coloured glass, and as a maleficent toy, for he felt, if he played with it any longer, that it would break and splinter in his fingers, as brilliant, as hard, and as dangerous as a piece of broken glass. He wondered why he had been attracted by this bit of coloured glass. He laughed at his folly and went home, certain he would lose her without pain. But memory of her delicate neck and her wistful eyes suddenly assailed him. He threw himself over on his pillow, aching to clasp the lysome mould of her body, a mould which he knew so well that he seemed to feel its very shape in his arms. His nostrils recalled its perfume, and he asked himself if he would destroy his picture, the sheepfold, if by destroying it he could gain her. For six months with her in Italy he would destroy it, and he would not regret its destruction. But had she the qualities that make a nice mistress? Candidly, he did not think she had. He'd have to risk that. Anyhow, she wasn't common like the others. In time she would become common. Time makes all things common. But this is goddamn madness, he cried out, and lay staring into the darkness, his eyes and heart on fire. Visions of Mildred and Delacour haunted his pillow. He did not know whether he slept or waked, and he rose from his bed weary, heavy-eyed, and pale. He was to meet her at eleven on the terrace by the fish-pond, 
and had determined to come to an understanding with her, but his heart choked him when he saw her coming toward him along the gravel path. He bought some bread at the stall for the fish, and talking to her he grew so happy that he feared to imperil his happiness by reproaches. They wondered if they would see the fabled carp in whose noses rings had been put in the time of Louis the Fourteenth. The statues on their pedestals, high up in the clear, bright air, were singularly beautiful, and they saw the outlines of the red castle and the display of terraces reaching to the edge of the withering forest. They were conscious that the place was worthy of its name, Fontainebleau. The name is evocative of stately days and traditions, and Mildred fancied herself a king's mistress, La Pompadour. The name is a romance, an excitement, and throwing her arms on Morton's shoulders, she said, Morton, dear, don't be angry. I'm very fond of you. I really am. I only stop with the Delacours because they amuse me. It means nothing. If I could only believe you, said Morton, holding her arms in his hands and looking into her brown eyes. Why don't you believe me? she said. But there was no longer any earnestness in her voice. It had again become a demure insincerity. If you are really fond of me, you'd give yourself. Perhaps I will one of these days. When? When you return to Barbizon? I won't promise. When I promise, I like to keep my promise. You ask too much. You don't realize what it means to a woman to give herself. Have you never had a scruple about anything? Scruple about anything? I don't know what you mean. What scruple can you have? You're not a religious woman. It isn't religion. It is, well, something. I don't know. This has gone on too long, he said. If I don't get you now, I shall lose you. If you were really afraid of losing me, you would ask me to marry you. Morton was taken aback. I never thought of marriage, but I would marry you. Do you mean it? Yes, I mean it. When? One of these days. I don't believe you. You're a bundle of falsehoods. I'm not as false as you say. There's no use making me out worse than I am. I'm very fond of you, Morton. I wonder, said Morton. I asked you just now to be my mistress. You said you'd prefer to marry me. Very well. When will you marry me? Don't ask me. I cannot say when. Besides, you don't want to marry me. You think so? You hesitated just now. A woman always knows. If you had wanted to marry me, you would have begun by asking me. This is tomfoolery. I asked you to be my mistress, and then at your suggestion I asked you to be my wife. I really don't see what more I can do. You say you're very fond of me, and yet you want to be neither mistress nor wife. A little dark cloud gathered between her eyes. She did not answer. She did not know what to answer, for she was acting in contradiction to her reason. Her liking for Morton was quite real. There were even moments when she thought she would end up by marrying but mysterious occult influences which she could neither explain nor control were drawing her away from him. She asked herself what was this power which abided in the bottom of her heart, from which she could not rid herself, and which said, Thou shalt not marry him. 
she asked herself if this essential force was the life of pleasure and publicity which the Delacours offered her. She had to admit that she was drawn to this life and that she had felt strangely at ease in it. In the few days that she had spent with the Delacours, she had, for the first time in her life, felt in agreement with her surroundings. She had always hated that dirty studio and still more its dirty, slangy frequenters. And she lay awake a great part of the night thinking. She felt that she must act in obedience to her instinct, whatever it might cost her, and her instinct drew her towards the Delacours and away from Morton. But her desire for Morton was not yet exhausted, and the struggle between the two forces resulted in one of her moods. Its blackness lay on forehead between her eyes, and in the influence of its mesmerism she began to hate him. As she put it to herself, she began to feel ugly towards him. She hated to return to Barbizon, and when they met she gave her cheek instead of her lips, and words which provoked and wounded him rose to her tongue's tip. She could not save herself from speaking them, and each day their estrangement grew more and more accentuated. She came down one morning nervously calm, her face set in a definite and gathering expression of resolution. Elsie could see that something serious had happened, but Mildred did not seem inclined to explain. She only said that she must leave Barbizon at once, that she was going that very morning, that her boxes were packed, that she had ordered carriage. "'Are you going back to Paris?' Yes, but I don't think I shall go to Melun. I shall go to Fontainebleau. I'd like to say good-bye to the Delacours. This is hardly a day for a drive through the forest. You'll be blown to pieces. I don't mind a little wind. I shall tie my veil tighter. Mildred admitted that she had quarrelled with Morton, but she would say no more. She declared, however, that she would not see him again. Her intention was to leave before he came down, and, as if unable to bear the delay any longer, she asked Sissy and Elsie to walk a little way with her. The carriage could follow. The wind was rough, but they were burning to hear what Morton had done, and hoping that Mildred would become more communicative when they got out of the village, they consented to accompany her. "'I'm sorry to leave,' said Mildred, "'but I cannot stay after what happened last night. "'Oh, dear!' she exclaimed. "'My hat nearly went that time. "'I'm afraid I shall have a rough drive.' "'You will indeed. "'You'd better stay,' said Elsie. "'I cannot. "'It would be impossible for me to see him again. "'But what did he say to offend you?' "'It wasn't what he said. "'It was what he did. "'What did he do? "'He came into my room last night.' "'Did he? Were you in bed?' "'Yes, I was in bed reading. I was awfully frightened. I never saw a man in such a state. I think he was mad.' "'What did you do?' "'I tried to calm him. I felt that I must not lose my presence of mind. I spoke to him gently. I appealed to his honour, and at last I persuaded him to go.' "'What did you say?' "'I at last persuaded him to go.' "'We can't talk in this wind,' screamed Elsie. "'We'd better go back.' "'We shall be killed,' cried Sissy, starting back in alarm, 
for a young pine had crashed across the road not far from where they were standing, and the girls could hear the wind trumpeting, careering, springing forward. It rushed, leaped, it paused, and the whole forest echoed its wrath. When the first strength of the blast seemed ebbing, the girls looked round for shelter. They felt if they remained where they were, holding on to roots and grasses, they would be carried away. "'Those rocks!' cried Sissy. "'We shan't get there in time. The trees will fall,' cried Elsie. "'Not a minute to lose,' said Mildred. "'Come.' And the girls ran through the swaying trees at the peril of their lives, and as they ran the earth gave forth a rumbling sound and was lifted beneath their feet. It seemed as if subterranean had joined with aerial forces, for the crumbling sound they had heard as they ran through the scattered pines increased. It was the roots giving way, and the pines bent, wavered, and fell this way and that. But about the rocks where the girls crouched, the trees grew so thickly that the winds could not destroy them singly, so it had taken the wood in violent and passionate grasp, and was striving to beat it down. But under the rocks all was quiet. The storm was above in the branches, and hearing almost human cries, the girls looked up and saw great branches interlocked like serpents in the writhe of battle. In half an hour the storm had blown itself out, but a loud wind shook through the stripped and broken forest. Lament was in all the branches. The wind forced them upwards, and they gesticulated their despair. The leaves rose and sank like cries of woe adown the raw air, and the roadway was littered with ruin. The whirl of the wind still continued, and the frightened girls dreaded lest the storm should return, overtaking them as they passed through the avenue. The avenue was nearly impassable with fallen trees, and Elsie said, "'You'll not be able to go to Fontainebleau to-day.' "'Then I shall go to Melun.' As they entered the village they met the carriage, and Mildred bade her friends good-bye. End of Mildred Lawson, Chapter 17 Recording by James Carson